I had to sign papers. I had to go and participate, you know, in giving my declaration and all of those things. And and I remember like um, just having to sign, like, yes, I I signed to this. I'm doing this. At some point, I did have the thought, like, can you just go <laughs> do this without my signature? Um, and of course, I knew that they couldn't. Mm-hmm. But I did. I thought about it before I signed. Norma Ramirez is a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. And she's talking about the moment she joined five other people in suing the Trump administration for rescinding DACA. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, is the policy put in place by the Obama administration that allows people who came to the United States as children without documentation to get a temporary renewable work permit. Norma came to the U.S. when she was five. By the time she and the other plaintiffs filed suit in 2017, nearly 800,000 young people were relying on the DACA program. And then in the beginning, there was this sort of like symbolic weight, psychological weight of like, you know, between six people we are we're fighting for for a lot of people um yeah and now now it's just kind of like it's there like it's happening and i have mixed feelings about where this is gonna go um how this is gonna play out but the decision to fight the decision to to not give up to say that we matter i i don't regret that This is American Descent, a podcast from James Madison's Montpelier, and with good reason, about pushing back in the pursuit of a better America. I'm Kelly Libby. Norma's lawsuit, it was the first to result in a preliminary order to bring back DACA renewals. That gave her a chance at two more years of deferred action from deportation, which also means two more years to pursue her dream of becoming a psychologist. In America, students, even high school students, have a variety of tools they use to dissent, and taking legal action is just one. Which is exactly what a group of teenagers from rural Virginia did in 1951. You've probably heard of Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision that forced the integration of public schools in 1954. But what's lesser known is that there were actually five communities involved in that lawsuit. One was a small town in Prince Edward County, Virginia, called Farmville. And the majority of the plaintiffs were students at this place. The Robert Russa Moton High School, which is today a museum. I wanted to understand what motivated these students to file a lawsuit against their government. And what did it take to get to that point? So I've asked Justin Reed to take us on a field trip to Moton. And we begin in an echoey hallway leading into what used to be the school's auditorium. So I think it really begins with the state of public education in Virginia um, in the early 20th century. Justin is the director of African American programs at Virginia Humanities and a native of Farmville. There was a belief throughout Virginia, but especially in rural communities, that black children didn't 
need a secondary education. And then once you educated a child to the eighth grade, that was a good enough education to make them efficient on the tobacco farm. But Justin says local leaders in the black community fought to have secondary schools. And over time, they were successful in getting grades added. Got a ninth grade added. We're gonna keep advocating until they get us a 10th grade. And then finally got a 10th grade added. Um, they were finally able to get a, an 11th grade. And that school building became too crowded. And the parents said, we deserve a standalone high school. And so in 1939, this building was constructed. When the county constructed Moton, they only built it for 180 students because there was still this belief that you know, black children from the rural parts of Prince Edward County wouldn't come into town to be educated in the high school. But by year two of this building being open, it was already overcrowded. And every year became more and more overcrowded until 1951. You know, in this space that's built for 180 students, you have nearly 500. So it's bursting at the seams with students. Students are having to attend classes outdoors. They're attending classes on park buses. They're having multiple classes in the same auditorium space here. And to deal with the overcrowding, the county responded by constructing what the students referred to as tar paper shacks. So these were three you know, supposedly temporary structures, but they ended up being used for years. Really, the conditions were, were like what you would find on a farm. So here you have these students attending classes in buildings that are built with materials that you would use to construct a chicken house or a shed or a barn even. And they're having to attend classes in these spaces. They're getting sick because they're constantly having to go from like the cold to the tar paper shack to this building. The tar paper shacks had potbelly stoves that did a poor job of, of heating the room. So students who were sitting next to it would be burning up. But if you're a few feet away, you could barely feel the heat. So you have one student in class having to wear winter clothing, like winter coats and hats and scarves, while the other student is sweating. The roofs leaked, and so in some cases, students would be sitting in class having to hold umbrellas in order to keep their desks and their work dry. And so the students are seeing this. They're going to the school board meetings. They're listening to their parents be disrespected and they become fed up, um, especially Barbara Johns, who was a 16-year-old junior here at Moton High School. Um, she went to her teacher, Mrs. Davenport, and she was complaining one day, you know, telling Ms. Davenport how frustrated she was with the conditions here at Moton. And Ms. Davenport told Barbara, you know, if you're so upset, you know, do something about it. And Barbara really took that to heart. And so she began to think, okay, what can I do? And the idea came to her in a dream that they needed to go on strike. And so she was very strategic in, in developing the plan for the strike. She had a secret committee of 19 other students and they met over the course of months. And she selected students based on trustworthiness. Uh, she selected students to represent every grade level. At that time you had eighth through 12th here at Moton. Um, she reached out to student government leaders. And she also made sure to select students from different neighborhoods around the county so that when she began to convince the students to walk out, they would have somebody from that committee to identify with. They met over the course of months, privately, secretly. She really developed this elaborate plan. So on the day of the strike, they had one of the committee members 
um, disguised his voice and essentially pranked phone call to the principal's office. And they told the principal that there were some students in trouble downtown and he needed to come and get them. So once they were able to lure the principal away from the school, the lookouts told the other committee members that it was time to enact a plan. And so Barbara had these handwritten notes that she sent to all of the teachers calling for an assembly. And she signed these notes with her initials. And she had the same initials as Principal Jones. So when the teachers got these notes calling for an assembly, they assumed it was Principal Jones calling this emergency meeting. And he had been lured away. He was nowhere to be found. And so they're bringing all of the students into this space here. The curtains open up. And it's Barbara and her committee on stage. Principal Jones is nowhere to be found. And Barbara orders the teachers to leave the room. You know, they don't want the teachers to be held responsible for what they're getting ready to do. And some of the teachers resist. And again, the committee, they have football players who escort the teachers out of the auditorium who are refusing to leave. And once the teachers are gone, the students have their meeting here in this auditorium. And Barbara makes her case. She explains to them why it's necessary for them to go on strike. She talks about the conditions here. She talks about how their school compares to Farmville High School and even some of the other nicer black schools in Virginia. And she's able, you know, after some debate, to convince the entire student body to walk out in protest. And so that's April 23rd, 1951. That's four years before Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. They were on strike for two weeks. During that time, they called Oliver Hill, who was known to be Virginia's most prominent civil rights lawyer. And they called Mr. Hill and they said, you know, we have a situation here in Prince Edward. We're on strike for a new school. We want you to be our lawyer. And of course, Oliver Hill said, no, and I have better things to do. Go back to class. And I don't want to deal with students that are playing hooky. Get your education. And the students are adamant. They say, no, we're serious about this. We really want you to be our legal representation. We, we're aware that you're the best attorney in the state of Virginia. Will you come and help us? Oliver Hill says, send me a letter. The next day, a typed letter arrives in his office from the students. And on his way to Pulaski County, he and Spotswood Robinson, his partner, they stop in Farmville just to kind of check it out, see what's going on. Uh, they were so impressed by the students and how mature and how determined they were, how well organized um, they were. Oliver Hill said he didn't have the heart to turn them down, um, but he did give them two stipulations. Number one, they needed their parents' support. Um, and number two, instead of just suing for a new school, you have to be willing to sue for integration. So the committee takes a vote, and they decide by one vote that they're willing to sue for integration. And so the students return to class. Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson filed a lawsuit in federal court in Richmond. And that lawsuit combines with four of the cases to become known as Brown versus Board of Education. teenagers are organizing here in Farmville, Virginia, Martin Luther King Jr. is in graduate school. So this is before we know King as a civil rights leader that he became. These students are laying the groundwork for the civil rights movement. 
really the youngest student was 12 years old. So you had 12 year olds helping start the civil rights movement in this country. And I think in many moments throughout history, we look to young people to kind of be that, that, that measurement of society, right? They're able to, to kind of see things as they are without the same level of fear. And yes, their parents have been dissenting and their teachers in their own way have been dissenting, but it, it, it took young people, to some extent, like our naivete, right? In order to say, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna think about you know, all the reasons why not to do something. I'm simply gonna do it. Students continue to walk out of their schools in protest, even today. We saw it recently with a national school walkout to protest gun violence after the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. Norma Ramirez remembers the student walkouts in California that called for immigration reform and started the Dreamer movement. So in 2005, 2006, I remember, you know, there were um, schools where kids were walking out from when that was happening, no one in my class walked out. And so if I had walked out, it would have been obvious, so it would have been singled out. Norma says she remembers a friend in school expressing her opinion on immigration, that when people seek citizenship in the U.S., they should do it, quote, the right way. Norma says that affected her. And I, I fell into this narrative of, like, the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant, and I always wanted to make sure that I did everything right the way I'm supposed to do it because I didn't want anyone to say that I had broken any laws or that kind of stuff. And Norma was a good student. She says she kept her head down and got her work done. It wasn't until high school that it really dawned on her what her status as undocumented would mean going forward. And so what did it feel like when you were, like you knew you wanted to go to college, right? When you were in high school, like what did it feel like to be navigating the college prep route in high school? It was very disappointing, um, very emotionally draining because whatever I tried, it seemed like there was a a wall, literally and ironically, um, to get to college. At first, I thought that I couldn't. Like, I wanted to go to Yale. I wanted to go to NYU or Harvard or Stanford, you know? Like, that was the kind of ambition that I had. And at the time, there was no help for just undocumented students. And I would also get invitations from other government organizations saying, like, you're smart, you have a good GPA, and you're also a minority there's some ready college programs that you could benefit from. And I remember I, I, I had this conversation with my dad, and he's like, you know, they, they won't be able to help you. And I was like, what do you mean? And he told me, you don't have a social security number. They're government funded. They're not going to help you. And I didn't want to believe him. And I told him, well, let's go and find out because I, I want to hear it from them. Mm-hmm. And so he went with me. I think we went about three times to these different things. And they all, you know, we we sat through their presentation. 
And then when I went up to go talk to them, they would say, we're sorry, we can't help you. And so after a while, you know, um, I just, I stopped attending them. So all of that was very emotionally draining. The only reason I think that I kept trying to go to school, to go to college, was because I was too afraid to go into the real world. To get a job. Norma says she would often translate for her dad, and she'd see on job applications a place for a signature, stating if you're a U.S. citizen or eligible to work in the U.S., and that if you were dishonest, there'd be consequences. And that was scary. And I knew people did it, of course. Um, people find ways. But I, I was too afraid to confront that at the time. Yeah. And so I felt like I was pushed to, you know, go to college because that was safer. I knew that. I knew how to do that. Well, and so then what did you do after high school? So there was a program that I could go to. It was to help students go into college, Community College of Southern Nevada High School. Um, And it was a mix of having high school classes and also college classes. And I did that my senior year. And so I finished my degree there. I got an associate's in psychology, and then I transferred to UNLV to pursue a bachelor's in psychology. And that was in... 2011. And so coming from um, CSN to UNLV, the tuition tripled. And it was coming to a point where I wasn't sure if I would be able to continue going to school Mm -hmm. or if I would just have to take one one class at a time. And then Obama made the announcement in 2012. Effective immediately. The Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. Over the next few months, eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. In that same speech, he clarified that the work authorizations would be a temporary stopgap measure not amnesty, immunity, a path to citizenship, or a permanent fix. So then I received uh, my work permit in the mail, I believe the day right before Thanksgiving in 2012. And now she and five other people are suing the Trump administration for rescinding DACA. Norma was in her third year at Fuller when she was asked to join. I asked her what it felt like to make that decision. To me, it was a bigger risk to not do anything. And so I decided that if I have this opportunity to to fight, um, then it was worth it. Because I know what it is like to have some sense of security, some sense of identity, some sense of, like, I can plan at least a month ahead of my future. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the work permit, the moment your work permit expires, that's when your license expires. That's when just basically everything expires. And so to go from one day to the next with just to go back to nothing, um, I just, I couldn't, 
I kind of just sit back and, and say no. Yeah, that sounds like a really stressful way to live. Yes, it is. Um, there's some research out there right now about the different mental distress and factors that we experience. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, also resiliency and it's it's you know it's this very mixed bag of deep suffering but also deep love i've always lived with fear you know fear of who is going to accept me who's going to reject me um the idea that someone is going to call you know ice all those things i i've that has been part of my life that has been the constant fear uh, so when this came up, I had to make sure that my family would be okay. Um, so if there was any kind of criticism or hate or anything from me, you know, making this decision, like, at least I believed that, it, you know, the most fair thing, I guess, would be that, you know, it would stay with me. Like, I would be the one facing the consequences. Mm-hmm. I didn't want my family to suffer the consequences of that action. Yeah. And so I did, um, I spoke to lawyers, that kind of stuff, just to make sure um, that they would be okay. Um, and so um, when I did make my, my decision, I told them, like, I'm doing it because I, at least to the best of my knowledge, you'll be safe. And so please don't don't start looking into that um but i did have people tell me not to do it because of the way um our our identity is in this country about you shouldn't be here um and how that message is brought on in in a variety of ways both vocally um through politics through through laws through through systems um and and i want to use the plural we because you know it's not just me it's it's all of us um we dissent by existing by being in spaces that were not created for us for example you know graduating from high school and then going to college like even that that is such a huge step for our community right now and so by being in those spaces when we're told, you know, you shouldn't be here, in some cases, it, it, it even feels like you shouldn't exist. Like, to just show up and be like, actually, I do, and I do matter, and here I am. Mm-hmm. That is a powerful way to do that. Um, personally, I don't think I fully experienced that up until I got to graduate school. That's when I felt the difference. That's when I felt the biggest culture shock because... Like I mentioned, I was the only one, and the majority of people are, you know, some variation of middle class um, white people, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're my friends. I love them, but our worlds and our experiences and the way that it was set up so that they could be there but not me, Mm -hmm. that is how I dissent, and... I know that I do ask questions, I bring things up, you know, that they may not be thinking about, 
and that's really what it is. That's what it feels like to me that um, there's a term actually that is used that our resistance is our existence. What would you say to young people who see an injustice and want to do something about it? I know that there's fear to be associated with the person that, you know, is being devalued in some way, shape, or form, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no one wants to be rejected. No one wants to be made fun of. And so it's hard. It's hard for us if we see it happening to stand up at some point. There's something there. However, from what I have been learning, I've been learning that relationships are very powerful. That's what we're made for. We are social beings, and we all desire to be loved, to be accepted, and to feel safe. And so just, you know, befriend that person, the person that you feel is, or you see, that is experiencing some kind of injustice. There's no need to be like, well, I want to go and help them. There's no need to have that sort of framework in mind, but have more the framework of like, I just want to get to know them. Mm. And that, that is going to have so much more impact and benefit because there's been studies that show that relationships have the same kind of effect as exercise and a healthy diet. And so that is how we change the world, I think. It's through one relationship at a time Mm -hmm. and a good one, you know, um, one where you do feel loved, accepted and, and safe. Norma says they're still waiting on a decision regarding their lawsuit, but that it could come at any moment. American Descent is a production of James Madison's Montpelier and with good reason at Virginia Humanities. Our artwork is by Carson McNamara and our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to the Moton Museum. I'm Kelly Libby. Thanks for listening. <laughs>